began this Advent journey with uh, this crying out from Isaiah, God, would you rip apart the heavens and come down? Like whatever it is that stands between us and, and God, the divine, like, like could we get rid of that? Could, could we do something about that? And perhaps we can't, but God, would you do something about that? Or um, whatever stands between who we are and who we long to be, or where we are and where we need to be, this gap that defines so much of our experience, like God, would you do something about that? And like sitting with that, that, that prayer, there's that question that stirs up that we talked about two weeks ago, how long? How long? How long until, until we know um, the immediacy of, of God or the, the presence of the divine in a way that doesn't leave us aching? How long until we see healing in the world? How long until the headlines aren't just so incessantly painful for us every day in the world that we look at? How long? And then last week, um, we, we looked at all these examples in the scripture, especially with these peculiar characters uh, the wise men, the magi, that show us that in fact the arrival of God or the advent of the divine is dramatically indiscriminate. <laughs> that it's not looking for the right people or the right pedigrees or the right tribe. That God will come and that God will come to all kinds of different people who are looking for God. So we've been moving through that and today I just wanna ask like, like what would you expect of that arrival? Like what would you be looking for if you expected that God might in fact come, that the question how long is not a question that will sit with us forever, but that in stages and seasons and in a way that the whole story is pointing toward, that question will not always be with us. Like if you believe that and if you believe that like you're not ineligible and I'm not ineligible and there's no kind of person or tribe of person that, that's ineligible for this arrival of God, if you believe all of that, then like what would you be looking for? What would you have your eyes open for? Like, how would you position yourself in readiness for that? I want to explore that today. Uh, to get there, we're going to do a little bit of history, uh, a little bit of scripture. And so hang with me through this. I think it'll pay off for us. Uh, but first of all, let me just point out to you that in the time of Jesus, like in the community of Jesus with the people that Jesus was a part of, this question was really important. Like, how long, God? Like, how do we keep an eye out for God? How do we position ourselves for God? This is a people and a time and place where, like, these questions are paramount. It's how they think about their politics, their religion, their daily lives. It's really important for them. Like, like would God arrive? Would God be faithful in a way that we're still waiting for? Like, all that stuff's playing large. And what happens in Jesus' time is that people start answering those questions, like, how should we position ourselves? How should we re, uh, be ready for that arrival? They start answering that question in groups that become movements or identity groups or sects within uh, the people, the Jewish people at that time. So I want to take you through these a bit. Now, I'm going to paint in a bit of a broad stroke, which is always a little unfair and misses some detail. But what I want to get at is there's like some impulses in these movements that I really relate to and maybe you do too. So one of these movements of people around the time of Jesus who's spending a lot of time and energy like waiting for God, hoping for God, wishing that things would be the way that they're supposed to be, one of these groups of people are called the Essenes. Let's, let's try saying that on three. One, two, three. So this is a group of people who have sort of organized their life together to be ready for God, to be looking for God, and they do it in a particular kind of way. The Essenes, um, they, it's like they look at the world around them and they see that the world's not what it ought to be, it's not where it ought to be, and, 
And they decide, in a sense, to sort of run from all of that and quarantine themselves. And so, for example, uh, archaeologists have discovered what was an Essene community at a place called Qumran. Here's a picture from Qumran. See that little cave up there, way up on the mountain? I don't know how they got there. Not my field of expertise. But, but this is a scene uh, from what is believed to be the community that lived at Qumran. Now, in the 1940s, a little bit of trivia for you here. In the 1940s, a Bedouin shepherd, an actual, like, Bedouin shepherd, uh, just in the last few years, 1940s, is uh, like has his, his herds, flocks of sheep? Flocks, flocks of sheep, yeah. He's herding his flocks of sheep. And uh, one of them gets lost in a cave. And so Bedouin shepherd goes into the cave to get the sheep and stumbles across uh, containers that have ancient documents in them. And when you're in that part of the world and you find containers with ancient documents, that usually matters, right? <laughs> this, is, uh, this is right by the Dead Sea uh, in the West Bank in what we call uh, Palestine today, that part of Israel, Palestine. And so, uh, so what's discovered there is uh, what comes to be known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you're a bit of a Bible nerd, you might have heard of those. These come from the Essene community at Qumran. And their whole sort of idea was like, like the, even the, the Jewish culture is contaminated. It's not pure. It isn't following the rules. It's not what it's supposed to be. So it's like, in order to be ready for God, we've got to get away from the world. That's the essential movement here. In order to be ready for God, we've got to get away from the world. As if being sort of connected to all that's dark and broken, all that's not quite right, all that's impure, as if living among our neighbors who live that way, as if being a part of all of that, somehow just we're not going to be ready for God, we're not going to be um, vigilant for God. In fact, God might not even come for us as long as we play along with all of that's broken and impure. So we're gonna leave all that behind, we're gonna go out into the wilderness and quarantine ourselves and build a sort of purity of community there. And this is a fascinating little tidbit. So not only are they quarantining themselves, like you gotta get away from the world to get ready for God, not only are they quarantining themselves, but they, they actually, uh, they do some reading in their ancient texts. And uh, the, the, the assumption among many of these people at this time is that God had left. Like quite literally, that God had left the building. And by building, I mean the temple. Like God had actually left. Because they would read in the older stories of their people, in their histories, that, that, that these accounts of the presence of God or the glory of God, and they weren't having that experience. So the only logical conclusion is that God has left the building. He's left the temple. He's not with his people right now. So when they say, like, God, how long? Like, it has a very tangible, concrete sense. Like, God, literally, you've actually left. We would like you to come back. That's the sense of this for them at the time. And the Qumran community seems to be positioned out in the wilderness, actually geographically, based on their reading of where God would come from when he came back. So they, they literally like put themselves on the highway between wherever they think that God went and where he's going to be back in Jerusalem so that they're going to be like the first ones to see it. This is how they position themselves, away from the world so that they can get ready for God and, uh, and actually, like, geographically, quite literally, positioning themselves out there where they think they're going to see the Spirit of God pass through the wilderness on the way to the temple. This is, like, this is the best analogy I can come up with, and it's a terrible analogy. But it's, it'd, be like, it'd be like all of us going to the international date line so that we could be the first ones to celebrate New Year's on planet Earth, right? Like, the first ones to have the party. They're out there to be the first ones to be ready for God, and they do it by getting away from the world. That's the Essenes. There's another group uh, that has a way of thinking about how do we get ready for God. The second group are the Pharisees. And you might have heard of these people before. Let's try it on three, though. Pharisees. One, two, three. Pharisees. Yeah, if you've read the gospel stories of Jesus or if you've been around preachers, you might have heard of Pharisees. They, they kind of get the bad rap in the gospels. They're like the foil to Jesus. You know, they're his... 
um, antagonists. They kind of come against him. They have lots of provocative questions for him. They keep trying to trip him up. Now, the Pharisees, uh, the, the, the root word here for Pharisee actually has to do with set apart, kind of like the word holy. And for the Pharisees, they, they, don't, they don't physically relocate themselves away from all the stuff that's broken and messed up, but they have a very, very strict relationship with the law, with the Old Testament law, with what they call the Torah or the law of Moses. So the Pharisees are absolutely obsessed with getting their own lives in alignment with every little detail of the law. Later, not long after Jesus' time in his ministry, later, it'd be the Pharisees that go through the law of Moses. This is like in the old strange part of your Bible that's hard to read sometimes, like Leviticus and Deuteronomy with all the strange regulations and all that. They go through all of those texts, which they call Torah or law, and they actually enumerate 613 explicit finite commandments, and they seek to live their lives and to get everybody else to live their lives in alignment with these 613 commandments. If the Essenes are like, we gotta get away from the world to get ready for God, the Pharisees at their worst are something like, we have to get ourselves perfectly right to get ready for God. And rest assured, this effort on their part to sort of align themselves with every little iota of that law is connected to their belief that, that God isn't with us right now and this might get him back. If I could just get everything right, that might get God back. That's the Pharisees. Uh, another little historical trivia note, if you're curious about this. In AD 70, when the temple is demolished and the Romans come in and just totally decimate the Israelite people, it's the Pharisees' version of Judaism which persists after that day and sort of creates the roots of what becomes the rabbinical synagogue movement of Judaism. That sort of has its roots back in the Pharisees and their understanding of how to live faithful even when you don't have a temple. So that's the Pharisees. And then there's a third group. Um, that is also interacting with the question, like, what world are we living in? What's wrong with it? What do we do about it? And the third group is the Sadducees. Let's try that on three. One, two, three. Sadducees, yeah. Now, the Sadducees, uh, they have a different way of playing this out. So the world's not quite the way it ought to be, and the world's relationship to the Israelites isn't great. They're oppressed by one superpower after another. At this point, it's the Romans, right? Uh, but their best way of, of working out the tension um, between the way things are and the way they ought to be is to try to resolve it artificially, and they just make peace with the way things are. They decide to go along to get along. So the Sadducees become the high priestly class that rules the temple, and temple here in this time is the center of economics, politics, religion, like all of that stuff gets wrapped up in one big knot. It's there at the temple, and the Sadducees are on top of that, controlling it, and they use it to gain their own incredible wealth. They justify it by looking back at their scriptures and they seem to find these connections between proper temple worship, which they regulate, and material prosperity. So if, if we control the temple and we do it the way that we think is best, then it's only fitting that we should be enormously wealthy and sort of live on top of the society and enjoy all those privileges and benefits. Uh, the Sadducees are so interested in going along to get along in sort of just like, like let's not ruffle any feathers. Let's just sort of make peace with the way the world is, the way it's built right now, the way it's held together. Let's play that game. Here's an example of just how committed they are to playing along with all of that. Now watch how carefully and, and thoughtfully I articulate what I'm about to articulate because the rage of ages which are in the room and the delicacy of what I'm about to discuss. If you are a good Jewish man, in this setting, for example, when you were a baby, a modification was made to some of your equipment. 
right? If you don't understand, talk to your neighbor, okay? In this world, if a good Jewish, a baby boy, his parents, would have a modification made to some of his equipment. Now, you would think the rest of his life, it's not that big of a deal because you know, it's mostly private and not many people see it, and the people who do see it are also Jewish, so it's normal, right? But then a thing happened before this time, which they call the Hellenization of this world. It's a little bit like, you know how today we have Starbucks everywhere, and you could call that the Seattleization of our country, right? Like this thing from Seattle kind of swept its way across. Well, the Hellenization was, was the Greek culture sweeping across the ancient world and bringing it with it things like uh, Greek uh, gymnasiums where men competed naked and uh, bathhouses, which were part of Roman culture, right? So all of a sudden, you have a world where that modification, which is made to Jewish men's equipment, stands out quite bizarrely in those public spaces. And if you're a Sadducee, you're not looking to stand out. You're looking to go along to get along, to just play the game like everybody else. So some of the Sadducees and members of this sort of way of thinking about what do we do with the world that's not the way it ought to be? What do we do with our identity in God when the world doesn't relate to that identity, right? They're wrestling with that question, and part of their response to that is they partake in a procedure as adult men without anesthetic to undo the adjustment to male equipment. And if you're uncomfortable right now, you should be. That's how committed they were to go along to get along. These are a few ways of dealing with the tensions in the world right now. And I also want to propose that they're, at their worst, that I, I, it's, it's, it's a little weird 2,000 years later to be making judgments on these people, right? But like, there's an impulse in each one of these movements, right? There's, um, there's, there's a temptation or something. I relate to all of them. At their worst, they're all sort of counterfeit ways of dealing with the tension that cries out inside us. How long? At its worst, it's, it's counterfeit. At its worst, it's, I can't handle the tension of the world as it is, so I'm just going to quarantine my, myself away from it. I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to put my head in the sand. Uh, I relate to that, by the way, the Essenes. I relate because in my personality type, this is actually my temptation. Different personality types have different ways that they sort of try to resolve tensions in the world. Mine is to withdraw. That's like where there's conflict, my, my base sort of impulse and my personality profile is to just kind of back away. I don't, I don't want to live in the tension. I don't want to confront it. I don't want to deal with it. So I, I can relate to that, but I think it's a counterfeit way of, of um, dealing with the tension of a world that's crying out and saying, how long? Because it, it doesn't really resolve anything, right? It perhaps just makes us numb or ignorant of a world that is still saying, God, would you rend the heavens? Would you meet us here? The Pharisees, I can relate to that. It's like, if I can just get my life perfectly right, maybe that would get God right? Or worse yet, maybe if I could just get my life perfectly right, that's a substitute for God. So I will white knuckle my way through this life. I will make sure things are perfect. I will make sure I am perfect. And that's as good as having God, because isn't the point of having God getting us right? So if I'll just get myself right, maybe that'll get God, or better yet, maybe I won't need God, because I will just make this happen on my own. I can relate to that. I don't know about you. And the tension between like, who I am and who I, I want to be, uh, and the tension between uh, a sort of discombobulated version of Jason and a, and a whole Jason, like, I'm tempted to just, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to power my way through this on my own and get myself in line. And by the way, I'm all for a little bit of willpower. I'm all for getting yourself in line, but I just think it's a counterfeit. It's a substitute uh, in, this, in this aching desire, God, would you run the heavens? How long? And the Sadducees, I relate to this one. 
The temptation to simply go along to get along, maybe pretend things are better than they really are. Um, just get really good at playing the same game that everybody else is playing. It's a game that doesn't assume the justice of God. It's a game that doesn't assume the goodness of God. It's a game that doesn't understand or think about the flourishing of everyone in a world where everyone is whole, where there's peace and, and goodness. It's a game that says that's never gonna happen. So you know, each man, each woman for himself or herself, let's just get what we can get. Let's go along to get along. And I can relate to that temptation. It's interesting though, um, that in the scriptures, we actually have the story of the advent of God, right? The arrival of the divine. And in the telling of that story, none of those approaches um, is rewarded. It's, it's not that in, in the scriptures telling of the advent of God, it's not that God came to the Essenes with their quarantined life away from the world to reward them for that. It's not that God came to the Pharisees and said, my goodness, you're impressive. <laughs> you know, you're, you're my kind of people. Now I'm happy to be there, Right? It's not, that, it's not that playing along, going along to get along did him any good, because by the way, going along to get along didn't get along very long because the, the Romans still came and wiped everything out and all that power and all that wealth didn't mean anything in the end for the Sadducees who had sort of built all that up as a counterfeit version of safety and security. None of those things is rewarded in the way that the scripture actually talks about the advent of God. I wanted to paint that as a backdrop so that we can be a little more confronted with the way the Bible actually tells that story. And now I want to turn uh, to the book of Luke, where we read that story of the advent of God. In the sixth month of, his, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Uh, we're going to keep going here, but quick time out. We're going to talk about Mary today for a bit. Now, uh, if you've been around, you know we call ourselves liturgically promiscuous. We, um, we're interested in learning from many different traditions in the stream of Jesus, right? Many different uh, ways that followers of Jesus have fleshed out what it means to live in that, in that stream. So, um, so the Mary thing, like in a room as eclectic as ours, which I love how eclectic our room is, it might have um, many different sort of responses, right? For some, it's like, yeah, whatever, character in scripture, let's go, baby. Uh, for others, like you might come from like the Catholic tradition, which has a very sort of venerated place for Mary, and, and right now you feel really connected to what we're talking about, which is really beautiful, right? Or you might be coming from a tradition that looks at other followers of Jesus and other traditions and the way that they relate to Mary and your tradition might look at those traditions and think it's crazy or, or you don't understand or you think there's a problem with it or whatever. Like, there's all that different stuff probably in the room when we talk about Mary for a bit. For the record, like, I relate to that last category, like having grown up in churches that sometimes went out of their way to talk about how crazy the Catholics were. <laughs> like, I can relate to that. But just while the Catholics in the room are okay, like I did my master's at Notre Dame in theology and studied all day long with them and had a great time. But I do remember like walking around campus sometimes and there's that golden dome and you think of uh, a place like Notre Dame as a, as a religious institution and they have this thing made out of gold which is massive and brightly lit and when I fly into South Bend Airport I can see it from my airplane, right? It like commands the campus and at the top of it, it's Mary. So that's interesting, right? I'm curious about that, like what's going on there? And I just wanna point out as we press further that this is a good example. When you find something in a particular tr tradition within the larger way of Jesus that you don't understand, some way of praying, 
some way of worshiping, some way of growing, some way of following Jesus, some way of being together in a room, or some way of living that out personally or privately. When you find something in another way within the way of Jesus, in another tradition within the way of Jesus, um, that seems really compelling for those people, maybe the smartest move is not to judge it. Maybe the smartest move is to get curious about it. Like, what's so compelling? There must be something that's very compelling there. There must be some root to that, some connection to that that I could learn from. And even if you don't ultimately agree with it or don't find it helpful, or even if you find it problematic, it would be great to start with curiosity. And so I just kind of want to offer that larger point as we move into an example of that and we talk about Mary here. Uh, let's read further. Mary was greatly troubled at the angel's words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Point out, by the way, all the angel said is greeting. You're highly favored. The Lord is with you. And she's freaking out, right? Uh, but the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you were to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. So I just want to observe a couple of things. We have that backdrop of the way those movements expected God, the way they positioned themselves for the arrival of God. So that's sort of in the background. And here we have this moment where the advent of God is promised to Mary, like it's happening here. And I just wanna observe with that backdrop a couple of things about the actual advent of God in this moment. The first thing I wanna observe is this is a flesh and blood experience. That the advent of God as we understand it in the scriptures, as we understand it through Jesus, it's flesh and blood, and that's really important because sometimes what we wanna do is divorce flesh and blood from spirit. We wanna take this gritty, embodied world and assume that God wouldn't have anything to do with it, but that's actually the opposite of what we see in this moment. I was, uh, had a roommate a few years ago who came home. He'd been listening to a Christian preacher on the radio, which I don't recommend, and, and uh, this preacher said something that stuck with him and so we were talking about it for a bit. The preacher said, our bodies and souls are so connected, they catch each other's diseases. Our bodies and souls are so connected, they catch each other's diseases. And I had this strange uh, experience as I thought about that idea. Because part of me says, man, that is very true. Right? Like you can do something in your body that leaves a mark on your soul, right? I mean, if by soul we mean those sort of inner energies and direction, that place out of which we live, like you can do something in your body that can affect that inner reality for you, right? And in fact, something can be done to your body that leaves more than a wound on your body. Something can be done to your body that leaves a wound in that inner place out of which we live, right? So it's certainly true that that connection um, can happen and it can be a liability. And, and also that, that what goes on within us, in our soul, um, it can show up in the way that we live in our bodies, right? If there, are, if there are demons and darkness that we are wrestling with, that we are hiding or running from, like that can live its way out of our bodies in unexpected ways. So I affirm that connection. But here's the problem. Most heresies aren't untruths, they're half-truths. 
And that was a half-truth. Because if you're gonna talk about the connection between body and spirit, between um, what is matter and, and what is of God and spirit, like if you're gonna talk about that connection, then you can't just talk about it as a problem because it's not just a problem. If it's true that our bodies and souls are so connected, then it's also true that that marriage might be powerful and beautiful. And what we see here is that the advent of the divine, God who is spirit, chooses to have that arrival happen in a very fleshy, embodied experience, which is pregnancy and a baby being born. So I just want to say, like, if you're wondering, how would you wait for God? How would you look for God? How should you position yourself in the expectancy of God's arrival. Don't take your eyes off of flesh and blood. Don't take your eyes off of matter. Don't take your eyes off of this world with dirt and food and buildings and places. Like, don't take your eyes off of that because the arrival of God happens in flesh and blood. And a second thing I want to observe about this. Mary's 13 to 15 years old, likely, in this moment. She's unwed, and she's going to be pregnant. This is the definition of vulnerability. And this is, this is putting Mary, who is already, as a woman at that age in this time, she's already vulnerable, and then making her unwed and pregnant. This is making her about as vulnerable as a human being can be. And I want to call that out because when I think about the Essenes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and I think about all the ways that I might try to position myself for the arrival of God, for the advent of the divine, when I think about all the ways that I might deal with the tensions between the way the world is and the way it should be. I'm so often tempted to try to make myself powerful. If I could just make myself powerful in this world, then I would be in a position for the good to happen, right? Then I would be in a position to see that gap close between the way things are and the way they ought to be. And I think you could argue that the way the Essenes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees play their games, these are all sort of counterfeit attempts at power, right? But here in the advent of God, as we, as we read about it in Jesus, it meets Mary, who's already vulnerable, and it actually meets her in an even more vulnerable moment, like where the dials are turned up. And it seems the one thing that matters in this moment is that she says yes. Some kind of, some kind of uh, surrender, some kind of willingness. Uh, I'm sure she doesn't fully understand what this is going to mean for her, but she knows it's going to make her more vulnerable. And she says, yes. And for all of us who've been crying out, like, how long, God? How long till, uh, till you arrive or till I sense your presence? How long till things are healed, till the world is made better? How long till that gap between where I am and where I desperately long to be closes? We've been saying how long, how long, how long, and it may be that, that the step that we could take that would position us for that arrival, it's not a step of power, it's a step of surrender. It's when you finally go ask for help. It's when you finally tell someone you have a problem. It's when you finally stop pretending the world is okay because the truth is sometimes you go to bed at night choked up because you can't handle one more headline. You can't uh, handle seeing how broken this thing is one more day. And so we try to make ourselves strong and then we wonder where God is and maybe God is saying, I'm actually, my, my arrival is waiting for you in a moment where you say yes in a way that makes you even more vulnerable for a moment. I mean, this is, this is my best reading of Mary's experience 
of the arrival of God. And I think for all of us who've been praying and crying and saying how long, it's an important word for us today. Now, um, Mary goes on to sing a song. Uh, This is uh, what's traditionally called the Magnificat, which comes from uh, the Latin uh, for the beginning of this prayer. A little note here. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you've read this. Maybe you've wondered about it. So Luke uh, is one of the better writers in the New Testament, like on a literary level, actually, like in the Greek. Like Luke seems to show a little more skill than most of the writers in the New Testament at what's being done here. And a good writer knows how to sort of like take a moment and bring poetry to the moment, right, to, to bring um, a song to the moment, to bring something sort of literary to that moment, to, to actually communicate the deepest truth about what's happening there, right? So Mary has just received this promise of the advent of God, and then Luke puts in her mouth this song, this prayer, which is meant to communicate something like deeply theological, deeply spiritual to us about what, it, what it, it's like to experience the advent of God. So like, like if you're wondering, like, what should you be looking for? What would it feel like? What would it be like to know the advent of God? Remember, she's a- allowing herself to be made even more vulnerable. There's that, and then there's this. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him, from generation to generation. So first observation, that with the advent of God, the vulnerable won't be vulnerable forever, right? Mary is saying that with this advent, like I'm being lifted, I'm a vulnerable woman in this story. I'm, I'm a quite frankly, in so many ways uh, on the underside of this world. But with the advent of God, I am being lifted up. I'm being ennobled, protected, put back on my feet. If we're expecting the advent of God, we should expect that the vulnerable will be vulnerable not much longer, that the weak will be made strong, that the oppressed will be lifted up. That should be part of the hope of this coming, right? I mean, that's at least what Mary's describing here. But then, listen a little bit longer. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm, He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. I just want to observe this. Now, this is kind of difficult text. This is kind of difficult stuff to talk about here. But if we believe that like an individual person in experiencing the advent of God will have their vulnerabilities covered, their weaknesses strengthened, the ways they are oppressed will no longer be part of their life anymore. If that's part of the advent of God, which by the way, sounds like really good news, right? If that's part of the advent of God, then what Mary seems to be saying is, but then also the way that the world is arranged the, the way that the world is set up, the way that the status quo of structures and systems in the world is causing people to be vulnerable, is causing people to be oppressed, is making some people weak and other people strong. If the world is set up that way and the advent of God will protect the vulnerable and bring up the oppressed, then the advent of God has to mix the world up a little bit, has to turn a few things upside down. I mean, that's sort of the plain reading of what Mary says here, and it also just makes sense, right? That, that, uh, that the world is sort of structured in a way that's better for some and worse for others right now. That uh, it's more than each man or woman for himself or herself. That one piece in the puzzle is the way that systems are built. That uh, there's an inertia to the world. 
that keeps it going in a certain direction where some people are oppressed and other people are lifted up. And if the advent of God will ensure that the oppressed are lifted up, then the whole world might have to get rebuilt a little bit. Um, I, I find myself a little uncomfortable with some of the things that the New Testament says about uh, wealth and, and justice. And, um, and I see other people latching on to those ideas in ways that feel angry or confusing to me. Or I, don't, I don't quite understand that. But I would just be like a negligent preacher if we turned to Mary and we didn't listen to what she's saying, which is that the advent of God is good. It comes for the vulnerable. It comes when you say yes. It doesn't come when you make yourself powerful. And that when God comes, uh, the poor, the oppressed, the vulnerable, those who've been cast aside will find themselves brought back to the center and lifted up. And if that's going to happen, the world's going to have to get a little bit rearranged. And that's part of what it means to hope. It's part of what it means to, to pray. It part, part of what it means to, to live in this Advent season. I mean, by the way, that's, that's why we try to get extra generous this Christmas season. Those of us who have more than we need, it's why we, we take some of that and we... We try to give it to places that have less than they need because we want to start rearranging the world right now as a way of anticipating and welcoming the advent of God. Now, for one more um, movement for us today, I want, to, I want to go back to that moment with Mary, and I want to share with you an artifact uh, from a moment in my life where vulnerability and surrender were sort of interacting, and I was living in the tension of those things. Uh, surrender's hard. Um, Often I read in the scriptures these sort of instantaneous moments of surrender. In my life, it often feels much more incremental. Like I slowly grow to a place where I can really surrender and say yes. And so I have this artifact from my life uh, which describes that experience for me, and I want to share it with you. Um, the ironic thing is this is kind of meta, okay, right? So this artifact comes from a moment in my life uh, where I was wrestling with vulnerability and surrender. But it's also going to require me to be a bit vulnerable and to surrender a bit to this community because it requires me to do something that I don't feel very good at and that I stopped doing because I don't feel good at it, uh, which is to uh, sing a song for you guys. So um, side note, like for years, like all I wanted to do was write great songs and be a great singer. And those are the two things I could never get my hands on. I could play piano all day, learn music theory inside and out, but never get there. And so this week as I'm preparing... I'm realizing this prayer that I wrote several years ago is uh, very much connected to this experience. And I wanted to share it with you because it's just this little snapshot from my life wrestling with vulnerability and surrender. But then I didn't want to share it with you. And I'm literally at home, like working on a sermon about how it's not about making yourself appear strong. It's about being vulnerable. And through that channel that you find the advent of God. And I'm like, now I'm about to sing in front of my church because I like to get up there and preach and do the thing that I'm good at. And I'm literally like, dang it. So I have to do this, unfortunately. And you guys are just going to have to bear with me here. And uh, my hope is that really, um, if this helps you sort of find a moment to reflect or pray, if prayer is not a word that works for you, if this is just a moment to um, uh, be present to yourself and uh, the places in your life where you might have some aching or some longing, then I just hope that this creates a little bit of space for that for you. Is the smallest part of me 
that ever dares to pray. It is the smallest part of me that wants to find a way to you. The faintest whisper is all with which I speak. Could it be that you bend down low to hear a voice so weak? And will you take the smallest part and make it large? And will you take the smallest step and carry me far? The best intentions reside in a corner of my soul. Now I need some help in conquering the whole. The smallest part of me that dwells in love and truth. And wisdom seems so frail in the face of my youth. Quiet but pressing is this life inside of me. While death shouts so loud but falters in this peace. So will you take the smallest part and make it large? And will you take the smallest step and carry me far? The best intentions reside in the corner of my soul. Now I need some help in conquering the whole. was the smallest picture of you who came to be with us and it was frailty that you used to show that strength has come so the smallest part of me might be enough for you to start As your goodness grows in me and an ally reclaims my heart and will you take the smallest part and make it large and will you 
take the smallest step and carry me far. The best intentions reside in a corner of my soul. Now I need some help in conquering the whole. We made it. Uh, your turn. <laughs> really, I don't know where or how, but your turn. Uh, Some place where you think the play is to be powerful, maybe it's not. And if you are aching, waiting for the advent of God, uh, perhaps the mystery is that it's waiting for you where you are most vulnerable, and he just waits for you to say yes. If you're able, you stand to your feet. And I'll offer you uh, a bit of a benediction today. May you run away from the counterfeit play where we try to make God show up because we are quarantined enough or good enough or because we just go along to get along. And may you stay faithful somehow. Not that you are perfect, but that you keep hoping for what is real and true. May you trust the vulnerable moments in your life to be the place where God may arrive. And if a simple, quiet yes will take you to an even more vulnerable place, may Mary inspire you because that's where God arrived. Today we say to one another, grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you very soon.